I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And what if I told you that sometimes being polite did more harm than good? That those niceties, the social graces we use to grease the wheels of our daily interactions, can actually hurt the people we may want to help and slow the pace of progress. But if not politeness, then what? Our guest this week advocates for an alternative that has a long and storied history in American politics. Alexandra Hudson is an award-winning writer based in Indianapolis, currently working on a book on civility and American civic renewal for St. Martin's Press. She earned a master's degree in social policy at the London School of Economics as a Rotary Scholar and has served at the local, state, and federal levels of government and public policy, most recently holding an appointment at the U.S. Department of Education. Now a full-time writer and speaker, she has appeared on Fox News and contributes to The Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, Political Magazine, Newsweek, and other national outlets. Alexandra, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So as I mentioned in your intro, you're currently working on a book entitled, quote, Against Politeness, Why Politeness Failed America and How Civility Can Save It. So to start us off, can you delineate the difference between politeness and civility, two words that are colloquially and even sometimes formally used interchangeably, and elaborate as to why it is better for us to choose civility over politeness? Thanks for that question. I think it's incredibly important to make this distinction conceptually and etymologically to bring clarity to these topics that are are very uh, frequently discussed today. It's my book. It's my project. So I get to define things how I want to. And so I define, I make this clear distinction between civility and politeness. I say politeness is It's the rules, basically. It's manners. It's etiquette. It's the do's and don'ts that you get in etiquette manuals that have been really published for for centuries and are particularly have been popular in, in, in the American context. So it's the rules and it's a technique that says, you know, you'll comply with the rules and you'll succeed. Whereas civility, it's a cultivated inner disposition of fundamentally respecting people, which sometimes might appear rude, might appear impolite. Um, For example, having a robust disagreement or telling someone that you think they're wrong and not patronizing them. And so I like making this distinction because it's even supported by the etymology, the history of these two words. The Latin word that we get politeness from is polier, which means to polish or to smooth over. And that's what politeness tries to do. It puts a pretty face and tries to diminish differences and and putting a pretty face on maybe some really important differences we have of opinion. Whereas civility is from the Latin word kittitas or citizen and all things connoting the duties of citizenship. And that I think is incredibly telling and important to keep in mind because civility is really our duty as citizens to fundamentally respect our fellow citizens in a way that will support our freedom and our democracy. So it seems like the difference between politeness and civility, if I understand it correctly, is politeness would be speaking nicely (laughs) as you see someone drowning in a river and civility is offering them a hand. Right, right. Or I'm kind of in the thick of some early American history and just just kind of tracing these concepts throughout our history. And there's this really powerful New York Times article from, I think, 2011, That talks about civility and manners in the South, which again uses civility, politeness, manners all interchangeably, as we see frequently today. But it talks about how, especially in the South, uh, in the pre-Civil War period, 
manners were incredibly important, even as people were, it basically put a pretty face in a very ugly system of institutionalized racism and slavery. And so it, sh- it draws a sharp distinction between the aesthetic of, of manners and politeness and the inner goodness of a person. Normally, across time and place, like if you comply with the society's social norms, that's like a symbol. It's a communicative device that says, okay, you can be trusted. I can do business with you. But what do we do when that's not true? When the fact that someone knows the rules of politeness that doesn't says the right things, it doesn't correlate with actually an inner character of integrity of a, of a trustworthy person, which is why I argue that the rules that politeness is not enough. And that's that's one example from our past, but there are many examples like that. Just so I can sort of better understand it and we can take it, I guess, for the listener to a place that feels concrete in a day-to-day kind of way. What would a, I suppose, the ideal civil society as you're imagining it, how would it look in its day-to-day actions different from, let's say, a polite society in which people are following rules, saying please and thank you, but it's a veneer, right? So how does one delineate between a society that operates under a polite veneer, the the kind of uh, brutal south of the past, and of course, racism still exists today, but that kind of brutal south of the past in which you know people are drinking lemonade and everyone's dressing nicely and saying please and thank you with a pleasant sounding drawl, but (laughs) they have slaves. How do you delineate today between uh, the polite veneer and the kind of civil society that I believe both of us and many of our listeners want? It's really hard because of this information asymmetry. It's hard to, to know what's going on in a person's head and the state of a person's character and heart, which is why, to some extent, people's actions are all we have. But the different, you really see the difference between politeness and civility when challenge is thrown at someone, when, when there's a time of test or adversity, like where they are kind and courteous and gracious and hospitable, when they have nothing to gain from it, when they're not benefiting, when it's costly, uh, when, when, there's, when there's sacrifice involved. Like that's when the polished veneer would fall away and the true character of someone would, would come forth. And I've actually just over the, this past week, I've been uh, going through some C-SPAN archives and listening to a number of congressional hearings and press conferences around a number of civility conferences and retreats in Congress from 97, 99, and a few in the early 2000s as well. And it's really interesting to hear the rhetoric around civility and civil discourse in in, in the 90s. And it's actually kind of interesting history. It's the only time in American history where there's been such a bipartisan retreat, where literally almost half of Congress went away to Hershey, Pennsylvania, to try and restore civic friendship and get to know one another on a personal level and bring their families and just, you know, talk a little bit about work, but also just reestablish friendship, get to know each other. And it's interesting to think about that this happened in the 90s, which they, they thought it was so bad that that they did this. And it's funny to you know, look back on that today, that that all looks very tame and, and kind of quaint <laughs> compared to where we are in our civil discourse today. But the Pew Charitable Trust donated $700,000 and the Aspen Institute operated these and civility retreats over a n- number of years. And basically what happened going into the retreat in 97, Republicans and Democrats said, this is exactly what we need. It's going to take a lot of work, but this is going to be the beginning of something great. And uh, we're not going to get rid of our differences, but restore a way that we can work through our differences productively 
And all of this great high-minded rhetoric that was wonderful. I'm like, okay, where is this going to (laughs) go? And then uh, after the 97 retreat, everyone who went, 200 congresspersons, like 180 spouses and 100 of their kids all went. And it was a wonderful time. And when they got back, Newt Gingrich and the Democratic leader of the House, like this was such a success. We are going to do this every year. This is the start of a great new era for our nation. (laughs) And then what happens? The Monica Lewinsky scandal and (laughs) House Republicans impeach Bill Clinton. And so anytime, and that just like whatever gains were made in that time in Hershey, Pennsylvania, it clearly didn't really stand the test of what it was actually going to cost something to maintain that civic friendship. It was going to not be easy, you know, to have uh, a significant political battle like that. And actually, when the Democratic leader mentioned the possibility of a second civility retreat in 99, in the wake of the Clinton impeachment, he was he was booed off stage by his fellow Democrats. They're like, absolutely not. Like, we're not going to do that. And this is not at all to disparage Democrats. Like, there's guilt on both sides. But it is interesting that this enamorment with the rhetoric of civility and wanting to strive for it and the disillusionment on the tail of like such aspirational high-minded rhetoric and hopes for it, this is kind of a recurring theme in our country. And I'm hopeful that digging into this history can can yield some fruitful results. What can we do to renew the good aspects of these past attempts to re- restore civil discourse and civic friendship? And what can we do to prevent things from going south so quickly and on, on the tail of like a really interesting and, and useful effort? And maybe it's not possible, but all that to say, you can clearly distinguish between civility and politeness when it becomes costly, when when politeness is not just a tool. When uh, politeness will, isn't useful anymore, people will reveal their true colors. Uh, whereas civility, that fundamental disposition of respecting others, that may look impolite, that may look rude sometimes, that is something that, that stays with you and can, can sustain even tests of self-interest. I'd like to use that retreat that you mentioned as a way to sort of frame my next question. How can we remain civil with people with whom we disagree, right? Especially when we're trying to bargain over something or strike a deal that requires both sides to kind of give a little bit. And in this in this case, I'm speaking about, I guess, our politicians specifically. How can we do that when we're surrounded by the madness of crowds, specifically in the age of social media, right? Because if you're trying to make a deal with someone on the other side of the aisle who day in and day out, either through 24 hours a day, media demonizing them on both sides or social media that incentivizes hot takes, incentivizes anger, incentivizes revenge, and does not incentivize things like grace, forgiveness, allowing differing viewpoints, how can politicians ever return to an era, however short-lived it may have been in the 90s, but how can they ever get back to that point in which they can go off somewhere alone, strike a deal over cocktails or a drink or hot cocoa in the wilderness? How can they ever get back to that point when everyone has phones and all someone has to do is just tweet something? Hey, I noticed that uh, this Republican senator and this Democratic senator who we both know are arch enemies in the news, they're over here by a campfire having a little discussion and that entire thing gets blown up because it goes viral and they're disincentivized to compromise. So can that era of, of civic engagement and compromise be reignited in an era in which social media disincentivizes it every day. 
So you're absolutely right that our media culture is not just 24-7, but incredibly invasive. There's such a blurred line between the public and the private, where people's private exchanges become public. And you know, you're know you doing something that you think no one's watching, but people video you, and you're all of a sudden a viral YouTube video. And on one hand, that accountability maybe isn't necessarily all wrong for our public leaders, but it is it is important, I think, to have some sort of private sphere and private life, especially with, with family and friends um, for our public leaders. The second thing you're absolutely right about is that compromise, uh, finding a middle ground is seen as sellout. And it's like we, we see this scorched earth policy uh, on both sides of the political aisle and this ever escalating political brinksmanship where it's they did this and so we're going to do this and, and just an ever escalating escalating like kind of race to the bottom. And it's an interesting question how to how to recover that. I see civility. Civility is fundamentally an individual level disposition practice, right? Relationships between our public leaders, that's at the individual level, and that has consequences for our country. But civility is also about relationships between citizens. And those relationships, whether they're intimate or whether they're anonymous, they build and sustain our institutions because they build trust. They build the social trust that is essential to our free society. And so the advice I would give to citizens, you know, just just non-public officials about how to start having conversation again is to do what they did in Hershey, Pennsylvania, which is start by bringing your families together and having conversations about not politics to remind yourself that like, remind one another that you have more in common than you have that differentiates you. That's a really important starting point that not all conversations need to be about politics and that there are lots of really important issues that we may disagree on, but there are lots of really important issues that, that we all care about that aren't in the news every day and can be a really good starting point to find points of agreement and friendship and that basic trust, which is necessary to have conversations on more sensitive topics. So it becomes more difficult when you're a public leader and your literal vocation is talking about the sore points, you know, talking about the points of disagreement. And especially, as you mentioned, when you're rewarded by your tribe, your political base for saying the incendiary and, you know, getting your, you get the tweet, you get the retweet, you get the headline. That's a little bit more, more difficult. But again, I think it has to come back to individuals, individual public leaders making the, making the decision. I am going to resist, you know, making this snide remark on the floor of, of Congress or resist, you know, making this tweet or, or resist, you know, making the short term gain that's going to benefit me and, you know, fire up my base for the sake of building trust with my counterpart on the other side of the aisle. It has to start at the individual level there, both in, in the halls of Congress, but also in our streets. Like, how do we interact with our neighbors? And how do we, <laughs> I'm looking at my neighbors all around me and I, from, from where, I'm having, where I'm having this call with you, and I don't even know their politics. And I love that. I love that. I think that's a really wonderful thing that I think politics, we give it far too much credence in our lives and in our minds and in our culture. And it's important to rein it in, scale that back a little bit. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I do think that there is an issue of incentivization in terms of how do we incentivize politicians to do the right thing, right? To not immediately go for the red meat that's going to hype up their base, right? I mean, I, this seems like a weird comparison, but it's almost like how do you how do you confront the obesity epidemic when sugar tastes so much better than a well-rounded, healthy mm-hmm. meal? 
right? And and politicians are addicted to sugar, and they're understandably addicted to sugar because sugar tastes really good. Yeah. And I feel like when the age of social media, it's just pumping sugar into the veins of of our society and of our civic leaders. I'm asking you kind of impossible questions, <laughs> but but I feel I I, I fret. I fret, Alexandra. <laughs> I, I, I fret every day. So I think that's why really these are hard questions. And that's why I think it's it's important to take the broad view that it's not just like our public leaders act a certain way because it gets them elected and reelected and it, it brings in anger dollars, <laughs> right? Like they're they're responding to incentives, not just from the media, but also from the citizenry and the voters that support them. And that's what's so interesting about this Hershey, Pennsylvania initiative. This was talked about uh, right before the 1997 first civility conference, where they talked about all these things we're talking about then, where the craziest thing that's said is the one that gets the most attention, incentivizing everyone to say crazy things. And it just becomes, you know, race to the bottom all over again. All over again. This is in 97. The point is, the, the whole initiative was trying to break that vicious cycle, saying we are public leaders, we set the tone for our public discourse in our country, and we're going to try and hold ourselves to a higher standard by being better, by modeling civic friendship, by modeling civil disagreement. And they recognized their role in that and tried to rise above it. Of course, we know it didn't last. <laughs> and of course, fast forward to today, we, we're, we're probably arguably worse off, more polarized. So that's, that's one side of the equation. The other side of the equation is the role of citizens and the role of voters, what is the role that we have? If we don't like seeing that in our public leaders, then let's support and vote and donate to leaders that take the higher road um, because ultimately they do what they think will play well with us. And the question of how to train, I mean, there's a whole conversation about education. How do you cultivate a love of the love worthy, a love of the beautiful? That's uh, maybe the topic of my next book <laughs> about how do we how do we order our loves and, and make sure that we value the right things, both in our own lives, but also in our public lives and in the lives of our public leaders as well. That starts at the individual citizen level, like at the character level. So all that to say, very, very, very complicated, but important to look at both sides of the equations, both the conduct of our public leaders, but also the character and um, the motivations of the people that put them there, us. Oftentimes, the ability to disagree with someone, even someone you fiercely disagree with, requires you to be able to speak freely, right? You can't have fundamental disagreements and then work towards compromise if you can't say what's actually on your mind. In episode seven of the show, I discussed with a guest the topic of cancel culture, which I think lends itself really well to an essay you wrote for Quillette, which was entitled The Value of Exercising Civility in Both Oikos and Polis. And in that essay, you wrote, quote, when we discuss free speech, the conversation typically is framed in relation to the government's power to shut down views within what Greek philosophers called the polis. But on a day-to-day -day basis, the more socially urgent task of defining the boundaries of legitimate speech often takes place within the oikos, the family and its domestic environs, end quote. So my question, I suppose, is how did so many people's views around the concept of free speech become so obsessed with its du jour letter over its crucial and accompanying de facto spirit? And how do we restore ourselves to a place in which we seek to uphold freedom of speech in the civil as well as the legal sphere? I think that's a, a very interesting question. And 
with every freedom, there is a correlative responsibility, a duty that goes with that freedom. And I think when we talk about free speech today, there's such a stark dividing line with one side of the, maybe the political left, we can call them, emphasizing how our words affect others, which is absolutely true. Words are not costless. And and so we see that side of the political aisle emphasizing our responsibility of our words. And that's especially true for our public leaders and those with platforms on social media or television or, or other, other aspects of our media culture today. So there is absolutely a responsibility component. The other side, political right, libertarians, or just free speech liberals, uh, whatever you want to call them, pro-free speech people. And I'm very pro-free speech, but they, they emphasize the right that we have. And I think to bring back balance, you have to recognize that you need both hand in hand, that with every freedom, we have a correlative responsibility and to, to use that freedom well. And if we don't, we will see encroachments on those freedoms. And we're seeing, we see that not just with free speech, where people are talking about antitrust law. <laughs> Although, of course, we know that the First Amendment doesn't apply to private corporations, but that's kind of outside the scope. But the, the point is, if we have just uninhibited free expression, people are going to want to do things that will curb it. And so the ideal scenario is for each individual to think about what are the ramifications of what I'm saying, what I'm putting on the internet. And that's that's one thing that is radically different from this 97 civility conference in Congress and any other era in American history. Like when did Twitter become a thing? Like 2008, 2010, <laughs> right? This is a very new technology in, in our politics and our, our culture more broadly. And that raises the stakes. Everything that you say is not just you saying it to yourself in a forest. It has more of a potential to to hurt and offend others. And we're exposed to the offensive things that other people say every day. So the greater opportunity to both offend others and be offended means that there's greater responsibility that we each have to think about what we what we do with our free speech and, and how we conduct ourselves. Otherwise, we will have people that <laughs> that literally want to constrain that. Yeah, I feel that oftentimes people tend to forget that rights do come with responsibilities. And it seems like over the last, I saw a graph of how often the word responsibility or responsibilities was mentioned in like large publications like the New York Times and other major publications over the last mm-hmm. 150 years. And those words like plummeted ever since around the 1940s or 1950s. How do we reinvigorate that concept that rights of course are fundamental right and that they're inalienable but with those rights we do have to exercise them responsibly i suppose we don't have to but we should and i like what you just said about how in something like twitter or facebook or social media that amplifies our voices beyond just the town square but rather the global square mm-hmm. that the power of our words carries even greater responsibility to quote a truism from spider-man Right, exactly. So it's an interesting question. How do we promote a way of thinking about our rights that that more strongly carries the weight of our of those correlative responsibilities we have? You're right. It is it is a difficult. It's kind of almost a timeless question. One way to look at it is that we all intuitively know that rights come with responsibilities, and we know that because anytime someone's freedom gets in our way and inconveniences us in some small way, then we, <laughs> we're we quick to remind them 
of their responsibility to, to use their freedom well. <laughs> and so we, we all, we intuitively know that there is this correlative balance. And I think a way, you know, an example I like to use is when you are running 15 minutes late for, for lunch with someone, like it was unavoidable and you're very sorry and the person should understand. But when someone makes you wait 15 minutes, you get annoyed. You're, you're infringing on my time. <laughs> it, it's just like, we're all, that's a, that's a small, uh, but related example about why, how we are, are more quick to give excuses to, to ourselves. But, and, and this is a well, well established in, in psychology and social science as well. So we're more, we're more gracious with ourselves and our own intent and motivations than we are with those of other people. So when other people, you know, do or say things we don't like, we're quick to remind them of our responsibility, but quick to, to make excuses for ourselves. So what's an answer to that? We, we have this built-in way of understanding the correlative responsibilities that come with freedom, but it's not always, um, that knowledge is not always deployed in a productive way. I think one way to keep that front of mind, that correlative responsibility, the duty we have to our fellow citizens is fostering greater empathy. And one way to do that, I love Adam Smith's tool and his theory of moral sentiments. He has this concept of uh, the impartial spectator, which is <laughs> very widely debated, but also like a little bit obscure because most people know Smith as this uh, free marketeer uh, who wrote The Wealth of Nations. But I would say that you don't understand Smith unless you've read his theory of moral sentiments, because that's where you get his theory of human flourishing, which is it has civility and empathy and basic decency all through it. <laughs> so it's it's a really important piece of the puzzle when, when we're talking about our free market democratic institutions. Smith has a lot of great insights on the culture uh, necessary to support those institutions. And so one, one of his kind of frameworks and insights is the impartial spectator, which is, encourages people to think about how their actions and words might be viewed by others before they say them. And that's that's just something that we don't normally do. We know our own perspective so well, and we think that we're always right. <laughs> and and so it is It is a challenge to rise above our own view and, and look at things from the perspective of others, but it's essential. It's just essential, not just for, you know, better interpersonal flourishing and friendships, but the stakes are high also for our democracy. A couple things there. I'm uh, experiencing some pretty major Bader-Meinhof syndrome because just last weekend... <laughs> I spoke with some leaders of a network of Montessori schools, and they focus very much on the importance of human flourishing. And that was a topic we discussed at length there. So it's great to hear you talk about it as well. But the psychological phenomenon you're discussing is known as, um, and I'm sure you know this, but for our listeners, the fundamental attribution error. Right. It's, <laughs> it's an error in which when we do something, like make a mistake, we ascribe it to a situational motivation, right? Oh, I, uh, I ran the red light because I'm late to pick up my kid from school or right. I have to get to the hospital. But when we see someone else run a red light, they're a jerk. You know, they're inconsiderate. Exactly. They're a loser, right? And I find like <laughs> cracking that maybe uncrackable psychological human code is so necessary in order for us to understand each other better. We have to be able to give the same kind of generosity that we give to ourselves when we make mistakes to other people. But it seems like a very difficult task. Relatedly, though, you were talking about how you oftentimes have conversations with your neighbors that have nothing to do with politics. And on the topic of neighbors, I usually try not to ask the same or similar question to two guests, but the stuff that you write about is so in this wheelhouse that I feel like it's important. Recently, you did a kind of a, a 20th anniversary review of Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone. 
in which you revisited on its 20th anniversary for National Affairs magazine. And Putnam kind of famously noted that Americans today, although I suppose today means the year 2000 (laughs) in his reference, they have fewer opportunities to interact with each other outside of work. There are fewer places of social congregation. It's called bowling alone because, of course, bowling alleys, which were once popular sites for Americans to intermingle and socialize with one another, have now shuttered across the country. And, you know, people are less religious. They're going to church less often. Really, the only times in which people often interact is at work when really aside and this is a this was a pre-2020 phenomenon being able to interact with one another at work but even then you're not really getting a chance to know someone outside of the work sphere today so perhaps things are different in indiana here in la it's very common not to really know any of your neighbors no one else in the apartment complex aside from yourself or maybe your landlord how do we foster a society and a culture in which we can get to know each other better in a non-political way in which we seem to have so few avenues in which to do so? It's a, it's a great question. And I encourage everyone to read the article because I actually try and add a little bit of nuance to Putnam's argument that we're just not doing things together anymore. Because this is, and this is also kind of my theory of how I view the human condition and human nature. And basically, we are fundamentally defined by two competing impulses. We're deeply self-interested, but we're also profoundly social. And those two aspects of our nature are intention and civility is the process by which we suppress the ego, suppress the selfish, and let our social nature to flourish. And this is this is when we, we become fully human and we flourish and we become the best versions of ourselves. This is the Stoics, this is Confucius, this is Chengza, you know, this is timeless wisdom across a time and place. And we know this by experience as well. We we need people to be happy. And so my one criticism I have of Putnam is that yes, many things have changed, but people are still finding ways to build and do things together and have community. Even in the pandemic, I've, I've done a, I've done a lot of reporting on this, where we are physically separated, we're finding other ways to still be connected through technology or just other innovative ways. And that's a really beautiful thing and a really telling thing about our nature. And it's encouraging. We're adaptive, we're resilient, we're determined, because we know that, that we are at our best when we are in a community. Yeah, there does seem to be a sort of tension in American society between our best selves, you know, our better angels and the worst parts of ourselves. In your essay, Civility and the Challenge of Ordered Liberty, which really discusses Stephen Carter's book, Civility, you wrote, quote, Americans suffer from a flagrant lack of respect for our fellow travelers. And yeah, I think it's it's hard to be alive in America in 2020 and not see that sort of flagrant lack of respect on a day-to-day basis, either on media and, and news or social media. Can you speak on sort of the exact ways in which Americans are suffering in this manner as you see it and how our lack of respect for our fellow citizens became so flagrant? As a student of history, have we always been this way or is this a, a recent phenomenon? Right. It's, it's a great question and very important question. So, so Carter, and I think in that quote, I think I was paraphrasing Carter's argument that he he's in the civility declinists camp, that he's in the camp that argues 
This is also in the 90s. He wrote this book in 98. And I think that essay you're, you uh, mentioned was a, also a 20-year retrospective, re- reflecting on his arguments and his, his themes 20 years after his book, which is fantastic, on civility was written. He, and he, again, in the 90s, he was arguing that society was going to hell in a handbasket. And he thought he was hopeful that this book would restore an appreciation for why civility was necessary, both inherently and instrumentally. That's kind of my my language, but he makes the point that, that I also plan to reiterate and expand on in my book that civility is an inherent good. It is inherently important and virtuous and noble to treat your fellow persons and fellow citizens with respect, even if you disagree with them. That is good for its own sake, but is also good instrumentally, as we've talked about the many important externalities of civility. It, it promotes social trust, which supports our democracy. It promotes working relationships amongst our public leaders, which also <laughs> allows things to get done in our democracy. And, and I can go on and on, buy my book and, and find all the other reasons, <laughs> all the other benefits as, as well. But the point is, your question about whether we've always been this way, I mean, human nature doesn't change. Human nature since the dawn of time has, we have been selfish, but also social. And people, communities, whether we are in hunter and gather tribes or the early agricultural communities, we had, we had norms to just help us coexist and get along. And one really interesting thing is um, this theme that, that Putnam gets at in his Bowling Alone that and then a lot of a lot of other social scientists uh, unpack is, is this notion of generalized trust and reciprocity. So obviously in a tribal, kind of the more primitive eras of, of human history, like you cared for your kin and your tribe and everything everyone else was a potential threat. You know, treat them with skepticism. The unknown was scary and threatening because we just we didn't know it was out there. But in our society today, we are, this really occurred during the Industrial Revolution and the era era of urbanization, both in Europe, but especially in America, which is the my area of focus, that we see all these kind of handbooks uh, for how to exist in an anonymous society where you don't know people's lineage and pedigree and reputation and their whole family history. Like you have to meet someone and decide, okay, is this someone I can trust? And that's an important role that civility plays in establishing this notion of generalized trust where you, you approach the world as if like most people can be trusted and you do things to help people and you are kind to others because you don't know if you might one day need need an act of kindness or hospitality as well. Both Tocqueville and Adam Smith used this phrase, self-interest rightly understood. You know, so both generalized trust and, you know, this theme of reciprocity, they both kind of employ man's self-interest to channel it to a social good. So I think that's a really interesting insight. It, again, goes back to our conversation a moment ago about the human condition as inherently selfish, but also profoundly social. Before I get to the follow-up question on your essay regarding Carter's book, I kind of wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of steel man something you just said about the importance of respect and respecting our fellow citizens in order to maintain civility or as a fundamental aspect of civility and our civic society. I'd be remiss if I didn't pose this question to you in 2020, right? In which there are riots and protests over police injustice and racial injustice and all other kinds of problems that people perceive in our society that need to be addressed. And so to put myself in their shoes when I ask this question, to be them when I ask it, I would ask, why is respect necessary 
when a person feels disrespected? Why is respect necessary when someone feels like their rights are being violated, when they feel invalidated as a human being, when they feel like perhaps the letter of the law or even the spirit of the law does not apply to them and people who look like them or people from their communities? How do we talk to people about the importance of respect while still acknowledging that oftentimes people feel disrespected and it can feel like a one-way street? Does that make sense? Absolutely. And this is uh, another important, thank you for that question, because it's another important reason why I draw a a sharp distinction between civility and politeness. Because one argument against civility is that it's been a tool of the politically powerful to silence and oppress and shut down conversation and make sure that the people who have less power in society and and who are um, you know vulnerable and marginalized that they stay that way. And this is exactly what Martin Luther King Jr. wrote, wrote about in his letter from Birmingham Jail, where he is excoriating the white moderates, the pastors who are pleading with him, like, just be patient, just be polite, don't ruffle any feathers. <laughs> just, you know, uh, civil rights will happen eventually. Just, you know, let it happen on its organically on its own time. And he says, absolutely not, because a threat to justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And he employed his his peaceful, nonviolent resistance, sit-ins, protests, uh, letters to the editor, boycotts, like these are certainly not polite things, but they're deeply civil because it was fundamentally about equal dignity and, and, and earning equal respect for all citizens. And, uh, and, and very importantly, it was, um, and Stephen Carter really magnificently writes about this in his book on civility, where he talks about the process of purification, where Martin Luther King and all of those he led, they went into these acts of civil protest after ton of time, like praying and and growing to love the people that they were protesting against. Like it was out of a a very noble motivation. And and the idea was to endure potentially violent and like painful and embarrassing, shameful things um, for the sake of provoking the conscience of a nation, which is eventually what happened. And um, so I think that that distinction between civility and politeness helps reclaim a really important aspect of what civility is. It's, again, not polite and can even appear rude sometimes, but it, it respects people fundamentally enough to tell them when they're wrong, even to, to take to the streets <laughs> sometimes and, and have, have robust disagreement and conversation on important topics because it's, it's fundamentally about respecting the dignity, the inherent dignity and personhood of all persons. I would love to see a conversation between you and Daryl Davis. Are you familiar with his work? I imagine you are. I don't. I don't know Daryl. Really? Oh my gosh. Well, I I feel blessed to have introduced him to you because he lives exactly what you're talking about, which is he's a black man who grew up in the 60s and he and I'm kind of I'm going to butcher a bit of his biography here because I'm paraphrasing it, but there's a documentary about him. He's done many podcasts, but he was marching in a Boy Scout parade when he was, I think, eight or nine years old. I think he was the only black boy in an otherwise all-white troop. And as he was marching down the street, people were hurling trash and expletives at the Boy Scouts as he walked by. And as a young boy who didn't really understand racism yet, he <laughs> his first thought was, why do people hate the Boy Scouts so much? <laughs> and it wasn't until you know his parents pulled him aside and, and told him why people were so angry at him for being black, he became kind of infected with a kind of curiosity of wanting to understand how people could hate him if they didn't know him. And so he dedicated his free time, he's a musician, but he dedicated a humongous chunk of his life, decades of time 
to seeking out members of the Ku Klux Klan and converting them to showing them that he and them were in many ways the same. And he respected their fundamental human dignity. And he has, I believe now, I don't have the exact number in my head, but he has dozens of Klan robes from former members of the Klan who retired from the Klan because he befriended them. And he keeps their robes in his closet as tokens of the accomplishments, not really of his accomplishments, of course, but really the accomplishments that one can achieve when one reaches out in that same manner as Martin Luther King and respects the fundamental dignity of the person they're talking to, even when that person doesn't respect your own dignity. Right. And so his ethos and your ethos are so similar. And I think you are kind of vibrating on the same wavelength there. I love that. But... To go back to Carter's essay, or to, to go back to your essay on Carter, rather, you expand on Carter's belief in the transformational power of forceful, confident civility. You wrote, and, and you spoke about this just now, his views on Martin Luther King. In the essay, you wrote, quote, the goal of King's nonviolent protests was not to defeat the opponents to civil rights, but to convert them. King and his supporters succeeded in persuading a nation that Black Americans both could and should become full participants in our democracy. The civility of the civil rights protesters was directly informed by their expressly Christian charge to love one's enemies and do good to those who seek to do harm. Indeed, the stated purpose of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, co-founded by Dr. King after the Montgomery bus boycott, was to, quote, save the soul of the nation. Now, To frame this question, I need a little bit of runway. So if you'll allow, this will probably take a minute. Carter speaks at length on the importance of faith in God and how that informs and empowers civility. Or as you summarized, quote, for Carter, seeing one another as equals before God ought to inform the manner in which we treat one another with equal respect, end quote. But, and this is a little dark, and I'm only posing this question to you because I feel like you have the knowledge to answer it, is America is less religious than it has ever been. And people who identify as religiously unaffiliated are now 26% of the population, according to Pew Research. That's up 10 points from 2007. So the thorny question I'm putting to you is, is one that I've been struggling with myself. I was raised Christian, but I've been part of that 26% for about 15 years now. But as I've seen what John McWhorter would describe as, quote, our flawed new religion take hold across America over the last several years, you can call it wokeism, cancel culture, whatever you will. It's a sort of vindictive, ironically puritanical belief system. It's focused almost exclusively on shame and punishment, without grace, without pathways to redemption. (sighs) Alexandra, I've grown concerned. And though I'm no longer a believer, I'm beginning to reconsider the function and importance of religion to fill a God-sized hole in us and our society. So to cut to it, is a religious backstop, however loosely held, necessary for a civil society to function? Can we save the soul of the nation? Can we save each other's souls if we don't believe that there are souls to save? It's a very thoughtful question. And I, uh, it's, it's probably worth a whole nother conversation to talk about the nature of uh, humanity's transcendence. And that's a, a separate concern I have today that we're just so reductive with how overly, overly materialistic and uh, how we view the world. And we've lost a, a vocabulary of the transcendent and the sublime. And I have a, a faith background as well. So that definitely informs my work. But to answer your question, no, I don't think that we need a mass conversion, Constantine style, to reclaim this uh, 
sort of disposition that I'm arguing for, this disposition that I argue uh, fundamentally respects the dignity, recognizes the personhood of others. That, that's you know, how I define civility. And evidence for this is in an essay I wrote on the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in uh, 2018. December 2018 was the 70th anniversary. And the Universal Declaration is a, is a quite an extraordinary document. I want everyone listening to table any concerns they have with the United Nations and, and treat this as its own entity for a moment. The Universal Declaration is the first document in human history that starts out, it declares the inalienable, universal dignity, inherent dignity and worth and value of every human life. Of course, the American uh, Declaration of Independence did that too, of what we know not in practice. And uh, I would argue that the Universal Declaration, it inherited the, the tradition of our American founding documents and expanded it and articulated those ideals even more forcefully. And what's beautiful, what's really interesting about the Universal Declaration it's important to, to recognize the context in which it was discussed and ratified. It was right after, in the wake of World War II, where the global conscience was absolutely seared by the atrocities of the Holocaust and such mass disregard, flagrant disregard for human life and, and for human dignity. Not only mass killings, but just repugnant dehumanization, um, human testing and disgusting treatment of women and children. And people said to themselves, like the world collectively, you know, made this statement, never again, we're not going to let this happen again. And, and how are we going to try and do that? We're going to make this categorical declaration, aspirational, like declaration about the universality of human worth. And we're going to strive to uphold that. And even though that is inherently that notion of universal dignity, and even the language of dignity, the Imago Dei, is rooted in the Judeo-Christian tradition, it's worth noting that every single country in the world signed on to this declaration. Every single one except for Russia and Saudi Arabia, I think. <laughs> um, and so that to me says that, you know, we have this vocabulary of dignity. It's, it's in our pretty recent past. So there are people alive today that lived through that. But what's concerning is that the further away we get from that very searing moment in global history where people looked at what happened in the Holocaust and just the mass loss of life during World War II, the further we get from that, the less mindful we are of how low we can sink to as a human community and as, as very sophisticated, technologically advanced civilizations, which is why it's important to be all these students of history, keep that history front of, front of mind and keep human dignity front of mind as well and keep that language and make sure that we are aware of the stakes in our in our own minds that our everyday interactions <laughs> that they contribute to this culture that really does celebrate human humanity and human diversity like being being a pro-human civilization and community that's a long answer to your question that um you know do we need religion the the, the influence of the judeo-christian religion and tradition is all around us to begin with it's just a matter of reclaiming the the important elements that have important essential ramifications for a secular society I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. And I just want to finish with a question that I ask all of our guests. We're limited as individuals in all sorts of ways. We're limited in our time, in our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. We're also busy. There's no time to think about everyone else all the time, every other group, every other individual. Sometimes even people who are important in your life can fall by the wayside as you get busy with other things. So in the spirit of that, is there someone 
or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now in the abstract that you would like to take time and offer empathy to? Yeah, it's it's a beautiful question because it's a reminder that empathy starts at home and it starts in the small ways. And offline, you and I had exchanged about an essay I wrote about Aristotelian habit making and the importance of, of creating habits that are pro-human and pro-dignity. And even if that means being respectful to technology and, and you know, shouting at Alexa can form a bad habit of, of us making decisions like, oh, is this a human or a person or a dog or, or, or technology like and, and deciding who, who and what we're respectful to can be can be a habit that in the long term can be counterproductive and harmful. And so the habit of empathy and sympathy is something that we can cultivate in our everyday. My husband and I welcomed our son into the world back in March, right as the world shut down, March 12th is his birthday. He just turned eight months old. And, you know, seeing the world through his eyes is the fundamental lesson in empathy, where it's like just the wonder and the curiosity and just um, the beauty and the innocence. And it, looking at that, it does give me hope when when looking out at the world today can breed a lot of resentment and cynicism and trying to nourish that, that disposition is really something I've, that has, has been nourishing to to me. And I, I love thinking about this metaphor of cultivating our own gardens, you know, just, just making those practices part of our daily lives so that when we are tested, when we are confronted with people that we don't like, we, we have that inner reserve of empathy and graciousness that we've been building up during this time of empathy building and, and training. So yeah, thank you for that question. Thank you for taking the time to come on and speak with me today and for the, I think, vital work in regards to civility and how important it is to our society. So thank you again for your time and for the work that you do. Thanks for the kind words and thanks for having me.